recording, aren't you? And it looks like, Owen, uh, if you haven't, if you guys do not have uh, the PDF in front of you, or if you do not have a copy of the translation we are using, which I think is uh, Penguin, and I'm using Minnesota Press uh, version. I believe they're identical. Um, yeah, I'm using the one you posted. Yeah, uh, we have uh, Owen up there who's lovely and going to uh, run us through and keep track of everything. So if you want to read along, uh, you can join his stream and uh, take a listen as we go through. Um, as always, I'm Brooks, and we're excited to have all of you here, and we're going to hopefully have uh, more people joining in and in and out. But uh, we have a, a, just, just some quick changes that are happening around the server. Uh, I made a little bit of noise uh, yesterday about this. Um, our lovely host, Craig, uh, has moved on to doing other work, uh, as happens during all of this. Uh, real life gets in the way of all sorts of hobbies. Uh, I think he's doing, going to continue doing work inside of the world of Deleuze, but he's got some exciting stuff with his job and a band and some music, which we'll be letting you guys know all about as it happens. Uh, but that, of course, means that he's more limited in time. So uh, you're going to have a lot more admins involved in the chat today. Uh, I'm going to be doing my best to keep things steering and charging ahead at at least a decent pace uh, so we can try to get through more or less of this. Uh, but uh, with that, uh, the normal housekeeping stuff that I always say, uh, we are still on the lookout for all sorts of volunteers to help host, to help uh, write, to help read, to help do all sorts of stuff, whether it's just simple moderation to helping us post on social media. Uh, anything you can to take a little bit of time off of our shoulders uh, is always seen as valuable. And we thank you very much uh, for volunteering. Uh, we also are going to be uh, setting up uh, some different chats this week, so please let us know if what parts of this text you'd like us to continue on, what parts of this text you'd like to charge forward on. Uh, we have a, a lot of different things going on, so please don't hesitate to uh, throw out opinions and throw out thoughts. Uh, for this conversation, though, uh, you've got all of your lovely admins. Uh, everyone say hi. Hey. Hey. Hi. Hello there. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. And uh, we've unmuted a, a number of you. We're happy to unmute even more as we kind of get into this. This is intended to be more of a roundtable discussion that's somewhat guided. We don't know the balance yet, so we'll figure it out together. Uh, but today we are going to be reading and continuing our reading of Anti-Oedipus, the three texts of Freud. Uh, and we are going to start off where we left uh, last week. If you are uh, joining us, we are in the PDF, uh, page 85 of the PDF, which I believe is page, I want to say, 62 of uh, the main text itself. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, begin reading, and we will see how the rest of the session goes. When the notion of group fantasy was elaborated in the perspective of institutional analysis in the works of the team at the Laborde Clinic, assembled around Jean-Louis, the first task was to show how it differed from individual fantasy. It became evident that group fantasy was inseparable from the symbolic articulations that define a social field insofar as it is real, whereas the individual fantasy fitted the whole out of this um, field over imaginary givens. If this first distinct distinction is drawn out, we see that the individual fantasy is itself plugged into the existing social field, but apprehends it in the form of imaginary qualities that confer on it a kind of transcendence 
or immortality, under the shelter of which the individual, the ego, plays out its pseudo-destiny. What does it matter if I die, says the general, since the army is immortal? The imaginary dimension of the individual fantasy has a decisive importance over the death instinct, insofar as the immortality conferred on the existing social order carried into the ego all the investments of repression, the phenomena of identification of super-egoization and castration, all the resignation desires, becoming a general, acquiring low, middle, high rank and prestige, including the resignation to dying in service of this order, whereas the drive itself is projected onto the outside and turned against the others. Death to the foreigner, to those who are not of our own ranks. The revolutionary pull of group fantasy becomes visible, on the contrary, in the power to experience institutions themselves as mortal, to destroy them or change them according to articulations of desire and the social field, by making the death instinct into a veritable institutional creativity. For that is precisely the criterion, at least the formal criterion, that distinguishes the revolutionary institution from the enormous inertia which the law communicates to institutions in an established order. As Nietzsche says, churches, armies, states, which of all these dogs wants to die? Uh, this, this paragraph is uh, hearkening back, uh, as the, most of this chapter has, uh, to very much trying to reframe where Freud went, what his thoughts were, and how Deleuze and Guattari see uh, their position in things. And I want to just, because we have a long conversation about this last night, it's worth pointing out that, again, here, uh, it is not so much saying that Freud was wrong that his ideas should be thrown out. Uh, while the book is called Anti-Oedipus, as we saw earlier uh, in this chapter, it is not so much that they think Oedipus doesn't exist. It's the opposite of that, very much does. But it is instead thinking of it as uh, anti the dogmatic side that has become Oedipus. Uh, someone maybe uh, now we should no go ahead. Maybe maybe now we should uh, characterize the dogmatic side and uh, establish a few <clears throat> obvious dichotomies which uh, rise up out of this first paragraph. I, I think so. Side. It would it would be worth Andrew. Do you want to take a second and? Uh... Uh, right. I, I wanted to outline a, a few opposing sides in a way. Right. On the one hand, we have the individual fantasy. Right. Uh, on the other, we have the collective fantasy, which was, uh, which was practiced in Labor. And having that said, on one, there's a bit of an echo. Sorry. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> having that said, that's uh, Jack. Right. Having that said. Uh, on one on one side we have Freud's clinical application of psychoanalysis, and then on the other we have Jean Henri. We have the anti-psychiatric movement and Laborde Clinic, right, with Felix Atari, and they're all trying to to establish a kind of group analysis, which would uh, very much differ from uh, from what uh, regular psychoanalysis does and establishes. Then later we see ego on the one side, the imaginary ego being right, on one side very uh, <clears throat> very important, while the ego is extremely unimportant, totally out of the picture, I'd say, on the part of the, the group fantasy. And just because it is a group fantasy, right, there is no place for this kind of individual, or should I say individualized ego, right, to... To, to to be fostered. Well, and and a lot of this, uh, I think, 
this this paragraph is is doing what they did earlier with Oedipus, that they're now talking about the death drive. And as a quick refresher of uh, how Freud uh, thought of the death drive and how it's commonly used in sort of classic psychoanalysis is uh, you kind of have two sides to you. Uh, you have the light, the life drive, uh, Eros, and you have the death drive, which is, uh, God, I was calling it the bad guy in the Marvel movies, um, but it's Thanatos, not Thanos. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, Thanatos is this idea that uh, in, innately to us as humans, we have this drive to chaos and destruction and uh, things like that. Uh, again, it's not so much that we don't have a death drive. That's not uh, not what they're saying here. They're they're talking about the death drive existing, but instead of us mm -hmm. having a Instead of us having a conversation uh, around how we have it innately, which is very much Freud's position as bio as animals, animals have this. Humans are animals, therefore, the the side of us that every human have has this death drive, and uh, he blames it very much on sort of our innate nature. The opposing side of this is actually what they're coming at us, where they're like. Uh, these things come outside of the subject. They are parts of the organization you belong to, the the society, the pressures around you, the the, the systems that are actually imparting that death drive onto you. Uh, I'm going to link into the chat um, a quick uh, paper, and I'm sure we will find someone else I know has the actual PDF. Uh, it's just one page from Eugene Holland, but the first paragraph is worth reading through. Uh, Deleuze and Guattari's critique of the Freudian death instinct is both political and historical. The political charge is straightforward enough. It is that in Freud's theorization, the death instinct replaces social repression as the source of anxiety and thus absolves civilization of liability for the discontents it visits on its members. Uh, and I think that's uh, that takedown of Freud uh, as a concept is is throughout this, that they're this, these things are not innate. These things are not about blaming the individual. Instead, we need to understand how we are moved around the entire. Uh, thank you, Owen. Owen posted the whole PDF. It is the one from yesterday. Yes. Um, so it's it's much more taking the idea that we are made by society and those desires come from without. Uh, I believe that's where we left off. Andrew, thoughts? Right. And, and I wanted to add just uh, going back to some of the mentioning of the concept of the drive previously in Antiochus. On page 35, they equate the drives with desiring machines. So there is not uh, a kind of Freudian conception going on here. But as you said, you know, and the screen pointed out in the chat, whereas the death instinct for Freud is preventing the formation of groups, right? Uh, for for Zeus and Gattari, these drives as desiring machines pose as a kind of help or even foster the the formation of group fantasy, right? Well, absolutely. And I, I brought up uh, my personal example last night. Uh, I've, I have a two-year-old and I'm I'm raising him. I'm doing my best to be a dad. And he's going through it like we all do, some extraordinary emotional growth at around two years old. And there is a side of me that I, as a human, I feel for him. And this, this comes in a little bit later, but I absolutely care about my kid. And I have some fantastic moments with him. But at the same time, there is a part of me that, well, that, what would a father do? What is a father supposed to do? How should I handle this as a father? Which is an absurd thing because the kind of joke is, however I handle it is how a father would handle it because I'm a father. 
but that group that I've placed myself in, that order of things, has great deals of repression on me. And I didn't join this group. It's not like at any point I went, cool, my membership card. It's just sort of the nature of things, the groups we place ourselves in. And with that, uh, we can move on to the next uh, segment. I just, I just like to mention something, which is uh, uh, Jane Jacobs. You know, he wrote, she wrote this book about life and death of cities, and uh, in that, in that, she talks about how. Um, sorry, uh, she talks about how cities uh, grow or they don't grow based on the creation and destruction of work. And um, and so the uh, you know I think that this this I'm reminded of this by this revolutionary pole of group fantasy because basically you know what it's saying is that we need to change the institutions that we are part of and uh, and one of the ways that happens on, on the very basic level is creating and destroying work and and Jane Jacobs talks about how. Uh, institutions that create, that are very creative, are constantly creating and destroying work. And so because of that, the institutions change organically. And um, just as a side note to what Kent was saying about the, the continual exchange between the institutions, right, on page 44, again, talking about the tribes, they say that there's no evolution of the tribes, right? All tribes... <laughs> Uh, sorry about that. All drives kind of move, right, on a kind of plane of eminence, right, where there is no evolution of one drive towards another, right, which would indicate a kind of <clears throat> shift in hierarchy. Yes. Well, it's, and I, I think uh, I, the next couple of paragraphs get a little deeper into this and it would be worth uh, moving on. Andrew, did you want to give the next one a read? Uh, did we lose Brooks? I'll do this one. Okay. Um, there results a third difference between group fantasy and the so-called individual fantasy. The latter has a subject, the ego, insofar as it is determined by the legal and legalized institutions in which it imagines itself, to the point where, even in its perversions, the ego conforms to the exclusive use of the disjunctions imposed by the law, for example, Oedipal homosexuality. But group fantasy no longer has anything but the drives themselves as subject, and the desiring machines formed by them with the revolutionary institutions. The group fantasy includes the disjunctions in the sense that each subject discharged of his personal identity, but not of his singularities, enters into relations with others following the communication proper to partial objects. Everyone passes into the body of the other on the body without organs. Um, oh. Andrew, would you like to go over uh, how Oedipus uh, homosexuality plays into Freud's theory? Uh, how what? I mean, you're kind Oedipus, of Oedipus homosexuality, right? Because Freud had a sort of controversial theory for homosexuality. Hmm. Right. And uh, in this uh, paragraph, actually, there are other things I kind of wanted to point out uh, first because I don't see. Uh, I don't see the point you're trying to make connected to this paragraph. Maybe, maybe you can elaborate. Because uh, this 
goes hand in hand with the previous paragraph, right? When they were opposing the when they were proposing the structure of the ego, right, in the individual fantasy with the body without organs in the group fantasy. And, and here it's very, very important to to show in a way, like how the ego is not completely opposed, a pattern we've already seen, you know, throughout anti-Oedipus, but actually, as they say themselves, plugged into the body without organs, plugged into this uh, more general uh, group fantasy, right, which functions as a kind of uh, you know, assemblage or a kind of uh, <clears throat> group of uh, different egos and multiplicity, even right. Well, I, so the the specific thing that's worth mentioning, just in case you don't have an people don't know, is uh, Freud's theory of Oedipal homosexuality. Um, and as I say this, no, I do not ascribe to this theory. Uh, is that uh, the malformed relationship with your parents uh, is the reason that you become gay, uh, and that's the very short version of it. It's a very long thing, and I'm sure someone's going to correct me slightly, but basically it plays with you and how you developed in relation to your direct parents uh, means you are malformed, and homosexuality was a malformation. Uh, he, it, it was controversial then. It's controversial as hell now. Um, that's uh, all I found on it, and if anyone has a different take, I'd love to hear it. So... So I'd, I'd just like to mention the uh, the fact that, uh, you know, if you look up group fantasy, there's not a lot of uh, work out there that's been done on group fantasy. But there was someone named Borman who was in America who did some work on group fantasies. And, uh, and, it, and it had to do with the, uh, the creation of self-consciousness within the group. And how that and how that works, um, but now we have a lot of different kinds of fantasy. You know, like we have fantasy role-playing games, and and uh, and there's uh, guided imagery in groups, and the fantasy genre, and and so there's a lot more fantasy uh, development of 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 fantasy than there was at the time well, this I, was written. So I, I think that here they're specifically talking about um, a lot a lot of Freud's work uh, and and classic psychoanalysis revolves around the idea that uh, it, each man is an island uh, for better or lacking way to say it that your own issues are because of how you went through life, how you chose to go through things, what happened to you, it's very, very ego-driven. Whereas what they're saying here, and they go into it in that last sentence, which I'd love to uh, sort of restate my understanding of this paragraph, which is that uh, the, the concept is not that the ego and the subject interact in a way that's very particular, but instead actually um, that group fantasy as a whole, uh, the idea that I've, I've chosen to become part of a group and by ascribing myself to that group, even if it's, you know, uh, without any intention, like me being a father or me being an Amazon employee or me being, um, which I'm not, but me being a target employee, these groups that I am part of, uh, these, group, these groups themselves are actually fantasies. And the fantasy that this group is includes the disjunctions. Uh, the person is joining it uh, not so much as a person. I, I don't become a father as Brooks and all the aspects of my entire personality. My singularity still exists, the details of my existence. Uh, but 
as soon as I've joined the group, I become part of, I, be, I believe here they're talking about multiplicities, which they, they get into a lot later and a great deal more in A Thousand Plateaus. But I become part of this multiplicity. But, but to do that, in order to become into the body of the other, uh, the only way to do that is to pass through the body without organs. I, I have to be do that on the recorded space of the history of time. And, right. uh, and this is how the, the ego from the individual fantasy is when the individual fantasy is abjured in the Zangatari is uh, kind of incorporated and as as they say plugged through the body without organs yes so so it's it's much more of playing with the the sort of setup of i am not it's not so much what i've done against the larger group, but instead the groups I belong to. And the group fantasy includes all of these issues, all of these problems, and I have discharged my personal identity, my my ego, uh, not of the singularities, but I've joined into that larger group based on how it has, that group has been recorded on the body without organs. Um, I just wanted to add a point to that, um, because in the text, like they mentioned that um, when you are uh, you're not discharged of your singularities, um, so this point about singularity is something that um, Klasowski also uh, points toward in his um, analysis of Nietzsche and um, what he refers to as impulses, and he defines that as essentially it's interchangeable with desire. So, um, so he he sort of picks up on, uh, and this is in Dan Smith's essay on Klasowski, and he picks up on this quote, this famous quote by Nietzsche that there are no facts but only interpretations, uh, and that uh, the 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 way we interpret the world is is sort of based on our on our impulses and on our desires, which is what that means. So, um, so instead of sitting in like a clinic with like the analyst and the analysis like kind of engaging in the work of interpretation, uh, what happens instead in, in group analysis in group through group fantasies and so on is our desires actually become like a springboard for interpreting the world instead um, and sort of like analyzing ourselves, but also analyzing the world and the institutions and, and so on. So I think desire in that sense also has this revolutionary potential for Gatari where it's not just the individuals in the institution being analyzed, but the institution itself. Uh, and more importantly, as Deleuze, um, in his preface to transversality and psychoanalysis, he mentions this includes all institutions, like it includes schools, it includes the military and whatever we, we sort of find ourselves uh, uh, as a part of. That's a really good point. Uh, to that end, uh, Pierre Klasowski's book, uh, Nietzsche, and, Nietzsche and the Vicious Circle, has been uploaded into uh, uh, documents uh, in, on the Discord server. It's worth reading because it's, it's referred to in the next chapter, per, the next paragraph. So uh, just Can in I ask, case you so want to is this, is this an example then, Afreen, of uh, an inclusive disjunction that would they say that the group fantasy has the potential, at least, for... The, as opposed to the exclusive disjunction that they kind of critique, that it has the potential for inclusive disjunction. Is that what you were saying? Um, so I'm not sure what exactly inclusive and exclusive disjunction means, but they do kind of talk about this tension between uh, drawing upon like the revolutionary potential of a multiplicity of desires, but at the same time, this tension that results from that, because you also do need like a, a kind of unifying force without it becoming like a totalizing force. So uh, I'm not sure if that's, uh, maybe someone else can 
clarify that. But that is like a tension that I do sense that how can it, it always be like this? Uh, like, what does inclusive disjunction mean? And how does that take effect in the constitution of, uh, in the context of a group uh, analysis? And so well, I, I think uh, the, the sentence specifically where they mention that is where uh, you are discharged of personal identity, but not singularities. And the 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 way i've i've interpreted that is that um when you've joined the group you you no longer have literally everything about your personality and all of your desires and all your desiring machines instead uh the the thing you've joined the the thing you're taking a part of all of those aspects of you that join that uh to steal the words they continually use say robert sir uh it, the body without organs falls back on that. It covers it. It, it subsumes that into the grand narrative that it has been telling. Uh, right. And before we get into the next paragraph, and because some of the people in the chat are saying uh, we're kind of moving too quickly, I would like to emphasize again the three kind of dichotomies, right, or the three differences between the group fantasy and the individual fantasy, which, as we said, doesn't exist. So, so the first one would be, as I tried to point out at the beginning, is that uh, the group fantasy is much more involved, on the contrary to, you know, Freudian psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis in general, to the social field, right? It, to the group fantasy, everything which happens is important, and not just the transference of the analyst and the analysand, and not just the familial relations, right, which happen be behind closed doors, uh, some 20 or 30 years ago when we were infants or uh, very young children, right? And to this uh, social field, to, to all these to all these social values, right, are opposed imaginary values, kind of, uh, and they say it in the, the text, imaginary givens, right, quote-unquote, because uh, these imaginary givens stem directly from the Oedipus, uh, from taking the Oedipus myth and applying it to such a versatile field Right, which is the social field, which is repressed in that way. And then the next one is the symbolic immortality versus the the, the mortality versus the symbolic immortality. And what that means, as they uh, as they explain that the revolutionary pole, and I'm quoting, of group fantasy becomes visible on the contrary, and the power of experience, and the power to experience institutions themselves is mortal. So in group fantasy, uh, these kind of uh, you know, omnipresent institutions like the army, the schools, as I believe Efrain said, are not deemed as uh, omnipresent, or not deemed as omnipotent, but uh, can rather be overturned, can be changed during this revolutionary potential, right, which is produced directly with the, the group fantasy. And the third point uh, I'm just now getting to, and that they get to in the third paragraph, uh, which we were talking about just now, is the ego, the, this kind of personal identity of which Brooks was speaking, and the body without organs, in which uh, the personal identities are forgotten, but the singularities are there left and then plotted into the body without organs. And maybe uh, somebody can uh, jump into and maybe add yeah, something to... Jack, you had, a, you had a thought. I know we talked a lot about uh, this last sentence. Uh, jump in. Yeah, um, I simply wanted to say that when we're talking about institutions, right, and the notion of um, group fantasy or the collective fantasy, um, how I'm reading them as is uh, recognizing that with institutions comes a kind of desiring machine um, 
And with that comes the life affirmative power, right? Um, I, I think everyone who's worked in a business or something in some institution knows that the institution's whole uh, survival, and it is talked about in that way, um, is it's, it's made into a, a kind of humanity, is to make it um, survive, is to make it thrive, living and creating which is, I, I think, what they're doing here, kind of comparing that to the individual who's willing to die for it, right? They kind of uh, take the polarity as people of the death drive as things that can kind of um, die for that creativity in, in some sense. Well, and, and I think uh, to, uh, Craig's making a great point. Uh, one of the things that really does separate out where the individual sits in the group fantasy is that the individual uh, absolutely has mortality, and it's something we're very aware of. Uh, however, there is an aspect of immortality that comes with joining these group aspects. Uh, so when we when we join the the group uh, fantasy, the the army, the general uh, fatherhood, these are literal immortal things uh, that feel like they've been here forever, feel like they always will be here uh, in the future. Uh, by joining that, I'm doing things for fatherhood. Uh, I'm applying a bit of my mortality to this immortal thing that I get to be a part of, uh, and that's. That's a, a bit of the separation here. Am I reading that uh, correctly, Craig? Yeah, close enough. Um, you you can join by voice, Taylor. You're still welcome to. Um, but I think uh, the the big thing we're talking about here is uh, actually, and we mentioned Klosowski a few times. I'm going to start reading the next paragraph. Maybe uh, I can take I, it, Brooks. Please, please. I'm sure. In this respect, Klosowski has convincingly shown the inverse relationship that pulls the fantasy in two directions, as the economic law establishes perversion in the, quote, psychic exchanges, unquote, or as the psychic exchanges, on the contrary, promote a subversion of the law. Quote, anachronistic, relative to the institutional level of precariousness, the singular state can, according to its more or less forceful intensity, bring about a deactualization of the institution itself and denounce it in turn as anachronistic, end quote. The two kinds of fantasy, or rather the two regimes, are therefore distinguished according to whether the social production of goods, quote unquote, imposes its rule on desire through the intermediary of an ego, whose fictional unity is guaranteed by the goods themselves, or whether the desiring production of affects imposes its rule on institutions whose elements are no longer anything but drives. If we must still speak of utopia in this sense, a la Fourier, it is most assuredly not as an ideal model, but as a revolutionary action and passion. In his recent work, works, Klasowski indicates to us not only the means of bypassing the sterile parallelism where we flounder between Freud and Marx, by discovering how social production and relations of production are an institution of desire and how affects or drives form part of the infrastructure itself, for they're a part of it, they're present there in every way, while creating within the economic forms their own repression, as well as the means for breaking this repression. So to go over uh, some of the parts of this, uh, because it's, again, a dense, but I think formative where we were in the text, uh, what what Klosowski is talking about here, and uh, again, I, I link to uh, a handful of his studies and things that he did, specifically where this comes from, in the documents chat. Um, 
when when he talks at large about uh, these things being anachronistic and seemingly time timeless, uh, I'm going to go back to my example of fatherhood. Uh, the idea of fatherhood and what it means and what a father does and therefore dictating my actions does not seem in time and place. It's not obviously a thing that is very now. It's not no one would ever say, oh, I'm cutting edge fatherhood. Like that's, it's an anachronistic thing that exists and extends back uh, again through the recording service that is the body without organs. So uh, as I, as I interchange into that, as I, as I judge into that, um, the, the, the person, and they use this example, is it, uh, it's in the next uh, couple of chapters, next couple of paragraphs. Um, they talk about one guy using an example of, I feel for you as a as a man, but as a judge, I have no choice but to then continue and so on. Uh, the, the ability for people to, that we would call it compartmentalization, but what they would refer to it as is that's part of our group fantasy. Uh, when the judge speaks, when the judge does what he does, as Craig is saying, um, uh, the 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 idea that it has a true effect in the systemic side of the world. I'm taking part in that as a judge, as part of this system. I'm not doing it as Brooks or as my individual self. That's the anachronistic, hyper-powerful uh, impact we have here. So when it when it talks about the sterile parallelism, we flounder between Freud and Marx. I just want to mention again Gao's G-O-U-X, Gao's book on symbolic economies, where he he creates uh, a system of these parallelisms uh, he calls general economies. Uh, I mean, sorry, general, uh, not general economy. Yeah, general general equality uh, between the Marx and Freud based on the structure of money. And then another another point that I'd like to make is that the, it's talking about institutions here, institution of desire. So uh, Carlos Castoriadas has this book called The Imaginary Institution of Society. And that's a that that's a really good book that takes off on this this problem of how desire becomes an economy within institutions. Excellent. Uh, Doug, uh, you wanted to jump in uh, with a... Yeah. Um, so I just want to make sure I understood what they're saying uh, is this means of bypassing the sterile parallelism. And um, I mean, I, I'm thinking that this is what they've been trying to do for the entire book so far, uh, in a way. Um, but uh, so the first part there about the social production and relations of production are an institution of desire. I'm less sure about that, but, um, oh, sorry, I said final sentence, but I meant the last two, I guess. Um, the affects and drives are part of the infrastructure. So that to me is like the way that they've been putting desire into desiring production as a process from the very start here, um, you know, and taking it out of this imaginary and symbolic realm where it has been for psychoanalysis. And um... well, well, I think it, it goes back to their, and they they spent so long on it, the concept of desiring machines and how desiring machines are real, and that's a it's a unique thing to sort of stretch across all these different things that they're talking about. But here specifically, 
to me, they're really talking about how in these institutions, uh, they are not uh, sort of existing on their own and they don't produce uh, drives or affects but actually that the drives are affects uh, that they are the infrastructure that, that that these things are literally built out of desiring machines and because yeah, of that, that makes sense because of like the Liz's um, you know ontology of becoming and morphogenesis yes, that uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so the the ability for these institutions to have an impact on the world is not because they are some uniform thing, and then out comes an impact, which is very sort of classic Freudian and Marxist. But instead, we need to take a look at institutions and uh, look in, internally. And again, this gets into uh, a, a great deal for me of Latour and talking about how uh, infrastructure can work and network theory, but. Every single aspect of how these things work is a desiring machine. They are affects. They are drives. These these things are the infrastructure. They are not a result of the overall thing. So, right, and they get into this uh, back when they first mentioned the sterile parallelism between Marx and Freud on page 28 and 9, when they actually, I think, for the one of the first times, formulate that social production and desiring production is actually the same thing or as they say social production is purely and simply desiring production itself under determinate conditions right so there there shouldn't be a kind of differentiation here we shouldn't say you know as you said uh, these drives and effects are created later but uh, actually incorporated from the very beginning well and and more so than that uh, to take the direct line from that last sentence uh, affects and drives are part of it they are present there in every way, while creating within the economic forms their own repression, as well as the means for breaking the repression. It, it's, uh, it, again, production and anti-production are, are, are things that are happening within repression, uh, that we are, all these affects and drives are part of the institutions that can be destroyed. So to go back just a paragraph earlier when we were talking about the death drive, the, the ability to... Uh, uh, utilize the death drive is is really built into these institutions as well, and it is our chance to destroy them. Uh, it is our chance to creatively destroy them. I suppose would be a way to put it. Right. I think this is a... one person at a time. Let's go with Park Bench. How about you? Hi there. I was just going to say this is interesting. I think it's really helpful because originally I was kind of struggling with this section where they talk about. The, whether the social production of goods imposes its rule, you know, through the intermediary of an ego, whose fictional unity is guaranteed by the goods themselves. And I was really struggling to think about that. But I actually think it actually makes a lot more sense if we just go back to the basics, as you guys have been saying. If we think about social production and what, the way they think of the, the concept of the individual in the first place or the, the subject as that kind of good that has been produced by social production. It, it's interesting because from the perspective of individual fantasy, that is kind of, I guess, how it goes. Is there's this kind of Leviathan style image of, you know, we said the army or fatherhood. It's this, you know, supra, this larger subject that just contains us all. And even linguistically, we speak about it in a way as if it has agency and it is this thing that just sort of exists in the universe. Whereas they're kind of opposing that in a way with the, and, and sorry, I wanted to say that what confused me about that was when they said whose fictional unity is guaranteed by the goods themselves. But again, you can kind of see that in that, that Hobbesian model of the Leviathan. It's supposed to be that, you know, the, we prop up the state and the state props us up in this happy kind of 
beautiful Ouroboros. But when they say about desire and production looked at from the other perspective of group fantasy, I guess that, that it's interesting that they're saying that, you know, it contains its own possibility of repression and breaking that repression because when you start to see it less as a kind of, as granting the institution that kind of eternal subjecthood, you start, you do start to see it as, you know, nothing but drives and, and you know, these different flows as well, which I guess goes back to their point about denuding the institutions and allowing us to see them as fallible, as mortal, as you know, things which we don't normally think of, you know, the state is supposed to be this eternal Hegelian thing that just exists and unfolds through time. Whereas, you know, seeing it from the lens of this kind of other perspective, you realize, you know, how fragile it is, if that makes sense. Well, and I want to make sure we bring back in a Freen, uh brought this up a number of times uh, last night and brought it up earlier. We're going to start seeing uh, in this chapter, I think, a lot more of Guatri's influence on the text uh, and uh, kind of a few of his very distinct rallying cries when it comes to how he viewed psychoanalysis and how he viewed the the way it was working. And uh, between him and Deleuze, they apply it at a society level, but it's very much going to start getting into the concept of how uh, psychoanalysts work, uh, how analysands deal with their patients and things like that. Uh, but uh, to that end, actually, yeah, yeah, I'm with you, Greg. I don't think I, I think Deleuze helped maybe edit a little bit and added some flowery language. But uh, I'll 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 read through the next uh, uh, paragraph because uh, it's a bit dense, but I think worth getting through at this point because we've already started talking about it. Uh, the development of distinctions between group and individual fantasy shows sufficiently well at last that there is no individual fantasy. Instead, there are two types of groups. Subject groups and subjugated groups, with Oedipus and castration forming the imaginary structure under which members of the subjugated groups are induced to live or fantasize individually their membership in the group. It must still be said that the two types of groups are perpetually shifting, a subject group always being threatened with subjugation, a subjugated group capable in certain cases being forced to take on revolutionary role. It is therefore all the more disturbing to see to what extent Freudian analysis retains from fantasy only its lines of exclusive disjunction and flattens it into its individual or pseudo-individual dimensions, which by their very nature refer the fantasies to subjugated groups. Rather than carrying out the opposite operation and disengaging in the fantasy, the underlying element of a revolutionary group potential. When we learn that the instructor, the teacher, is daddy and the colonel, too, and also the mother, when all the agents of social production and anti-production are in this way reduced to the figures of familial reproduction, we can understand why the panicked libido no longer risks abandoning Oedipus and internalizes it. The libido internalizes it in the form of castrating duality between the subject of the statement and the subject of the enunciation. As is characteristic of the pseudo-individual fantasy, I, as a man, understand you, but as a judge, boss, colonel, or general, that is to say, the father, I condemn you. But this duality is artificial derived and supposes a direct relationship proceeding from the statement to the collective agents of enunciation in the group fantasy. That's a lot. There's a lot there. Uh, as I said, mm, yeah, it's completely Guattari. This is, this is almost entirely that. I think Freen called it last night. And uh, it was spot on. And I do have to give a shout out, GG Pal nineteen. Uh, I've, I've been I've been checking out your TikTok. And so yes, this is a excellent uh, uh, section you did. But a couple of the things I wanted to just quickly touch on before uh, we have the larger conversation is uh, 
is uh, is around uh, what a lot of these things uh, mean in terms of the Freudian world. So uh, if you're not familiar, again, to go back, it's death, drive, and eros. Eros and thanatos are life and death drives that we have naturally. The libido is the libidinal energy, the, the energy we have towards creation, towards uh, the eros uh, that, that eros kind of consumes and produces. Uh, so when we're talking about the libidinal energy being reserved in different places, that's that's what they're referring to in here. Uh, it's also worth mentioning uh, that when we talk about the duality, I again, I, I really get hit uh, very, very specifically in this. Um, but I think the, the way I read a lot of this, and I'll, I'll start leaving it open to more chatter after this, but... Um, the, the idea here to me is that we are talking about Oedipus existing, and Oedipus does exist, but ultimately we kind of, um, we, we fucked up what Oedipus is. Oedipus is not just my relationship with my parents at a young child age, and then I grow up based on those things, but instead it's the systemic structures I'm in. The, the representations are real, the desires are real, all these things around me are real. And those are the things that ultimately are driving me to have this duality where I can at once be a man and I can have empathy for a person. But, and, and again, my example of my son, I, I feel for him. He, but at the same time, I have pangs of, well, as a father, I need to make sure he grows up to be tougher so he can survive things. Um, um, I would like to add. Please. Regarding Oedipus quickly, just as you said, um, you said, I think that we fucked up Oedipus. I think that the precise point they're making in the, the whole book is that we have extended Oedipus, uh, and unrightfully so. I think that it's not about uh, us doing something wrong, per se, but just thinking that Oedipus can be extended to this whole field of you know social production, when actually it can't. Social production cannot be reduced to Oedipus, Right, and Oedipus cannot be extended enough to cover the whole of social production. So, so these two, um, these two kind of poles uh, work together, right? So, yeah, I think that the main critique, as we said uh, numerous times, is not you know a bit, let's abandon Oedipus, but like, but uh, rather uh, let's see where Oedipus really stands. What's Oedip what's the real role of Oedipus, and, and not just. Uh, you know, presuppose that Oedipus is everywhere. And maybe uh, I would like to talk in a bit about the the subject of enunciation and the subject of the statement, because the, this is a very Lacanian, you know, concept around which which can be connected, I think, to to the whole uh, unconscious production of language as Lacan, you know, designates it. So, so maybe. Uh, some of you can comment uh, on it before, and then we can launch a conversation on that. I'd just like to say that, you know, when we talk about Oedipus, I mean, you know, one way to think about it is to substitute in the patriarchal system within our culture. You know, it's not just specific to psychoanalysis. It's a much broader structure that has to do with the uh, the the you know, the way the way the societies have been set up in the past as patriarchal systems. Well, I think that's absolutely the point they're making. It's a, a, a bit of a almost a, uh, to steal a line about uh, philosophers uh, kicking the sand up and uh, then complaining they can't see. 
As I, I would almost imagine Guattari saying something along the line that psychoanalysts first blind themselves after having sex with their moms and then complain they can't see because they spend so much time in this world of Oedipus is the base for everything. It comes from these handful of things that they don't then take into effect really the rest of all of it, which is all the ways people are impacted, uh, all the ways that uh, basically stretching Oedipus out over everything and saying all of these things come into that uh, that example and all of that comes into what ultimately makes us uh, as we see ourselves in the group fantasy. Hmm? You, you know, Gao has this other book called Oedipus the Philosopher. And uh, in there, he uh, contrasts the Oedipus myth to the, uh, the mono myth of the hero go undergoing initiation and basically says, that Oedipus fails those initiations, and that's why he's put into the position he is in, is because he's failed the initiations that, uh, you know, which come from the fact that the, the the cities have to defend themselves, and so they have to train the their uh, their men to be warriors to to train uh, to uh, protect the city. Uh, would anyone does anyone have a comment on? The the last sentence in there, I think a lot of this stuff is great, but that last sentence sticks with me, and I'd love if anyone has specific understanding around the concept of collective agents of enunciation, uh, the last sentence being, but this duality uh, between myself and the group fantasy is artificial, derived, and supposes a direct relationship proceeding from the statement to the collective agents of enunciation in the group fantasy. Uh, I really, that, <clears throat> I love that line. Please go for it. But um, to understand this, we need to understand how the subject is split in Lacanian psychoanalysis. And um, maybe this is a, a kind of a tangent, and maybe um, this is something which can take longer to explain, but I really think it's, uh, it's pivotal for this paragraph. So I'll just try to give a brief recap what the subject of the statement is and what the subject of enunciation is. So for Lacan, the subject of the statement is this uh, kind of I, Right. When you say in a sentence, for example, and von Hoyt, I think, uses this in his book that I referenced, like, uh, I'm a diligent student. The subject of the statement is the very I, the, the first person, right, which um, actually thinks or, or of which we think actually carries the statement. But for Lacan, this is not true. And this is where the, the split subject comes right uh, and his whole you know overarching theory that we do not speak but are actually spoken and what the subject of the, the enunciation is is the very you know the very uh, subject who is doing the speaking right if this is not us so what happens is uh, this is a kind of unconscious production right so what is enunciated is not uh, kind of recognized in the subject of the statement uh, kind of not recognizing the subject of the statement, right? But is actually uh, a kind of unconscious, uh, right, mechanism pushing it out of us, and, and this is, in a way, how we're spoken. But I think what, and maybe this uh, doesn't make sense, and I can get into it tomorrow in the recap. But um, what Deleuze and here is saying is that this, uh, this supposed dichotomy, right, of uh, a kind of I, and then the, the subject of enunciation, which is, you know, fulfilling the the sentence, right, is not actually a real dichotomy. What happens is, 
the whole sentence right in this kind of group fantasy is uh, is this unconscious right it is a part of our fantasy it's not like uh, we're inherently split or whatever right well Maybe, so uh, I, I think um, the the way I would uh, when we talk about the collective agents of enunciation, uh, uh, Zizek talks a lot about Lacan, and he used an example I really like, which is the mother in Psycho. Um, when when Norman Bates is talking with mother, it's hyper performative. Uh, mother doesn't exist; it's very much his in his head. Uh, but it's still as if everything is being said aloud, and often he even does say things aloud. Uh, that is being done as a performative thing for the collective agents of enunciation. And it is a thing we do when we are having a conversation with the larger things, the, the larger story of the world, the big other, uh, however you may want to phrase it, that uh, you, you, you do these things almost performatively uh, in order to say that you are a part of that group fantasy is how I read this section, how I read uh, this in line with uh, a few other Lacanian things. So we're, we're talking about actually that uh, you can't just simply say, to take the previous sentence, I as a man understand you and uh, you're going to jail for life. You have to go through the process, even in your head, but out loud very much. You have to say, I as a man understand you, but as a judge, you, it's it's a necessarily performative uh, thing that you have to do. You have to enunciate that out for the collective agents of the group fantasy. That's a, your army, the army of the group that you're part of. Um, I think I've, I've, a recent application of this, I've also seen Peter Coffin talks about this on his YouTube channel a lot, is the need for people to, uh, before they have a conversation, uh, they have to naturally signal that they are very angry about a thing. So uh, yes, uh, you know, despite how much I hate Louis C.K., I will then, and then I go into a discussion, uh, despite how shitty Donald Trump is, he was right on this. You have to start with that performative, I'm part of this group, I'm signaling that I'm with you on all of this. Um, and that's the collective agents of enunciation. I'm saying this out loud for all of them. So, uh, you know, the... Uh... You know the su the the su the subject of the statement is the you know uh, the, in the statement I am lying. That's the I of I am lying. But the 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 subject of enunciation is more like Dasein. Uh, it's the one you know Nietzsche said it it speaks. You know it thinks. It it it's not him that thinks. And, right. yes. and that's because the thoughts bubble up. And a lot of times you don't know what those thoughts that are bubbling up are going to be. And, and so one way to think about this that I like is to uh, look back at Greek tragedy and see how it was structured. And it was structured so that it had characters, either one, two or three characters on stage. But then there was a chorus and there was the leader of the chorus. And so the leader of the chorus is like Dazan. And uh, and then and then there's the chorus, kind of reflecting the how the audience should feel about the play, and so the subject of a, of enunciation is like the leader of the chorus or Dasein. It's the one that's projecting, you know, it's like the uh, the uh, anonymous thing that is the it that's projecting in the speech, the conversation. But what Deleuze and Guattari are saying here is, no, it's the whole chorus that's the subject, not not just that Dasein character. I believe so. Um, 
Well, with that, I'd love to move on to the next paragraph. Uh, let's see. Right now, I like... can that. Sure, why not? Yeah. So institutional analysis tries to trace its different paths to trace its difficult path between the repressive asylum and the legalistic hospital on the one hand and contractual psychoanalysis on the other. From the outset, the psychoanalytic relationship modeled itself after the contractual relationship of the most traditional bourgeois medicine, the fiend exclusion of a third party, the hypocritical role of money, to which psychoanalysis brought farcical new justifications, the pretend time limitation that contradicts itself by reproducing a debt to infinity, by feeding an inexhaustible transference, and by always nursing new quote-unquote conflicts. We are astonished when we hear that a terminated analysis is by the very fact a failure, even if this proposition is accompanied by the analyst's little smile. We are surprised when we hear a knowledgeable analyst mention in passing that one of his patients still dreams of being invited to eat or have a drink at his place after several years of analysis, as if it were not a tiny sign of the abject dependence to which analysis reduced the patient's. How can we ward off in the practice of the cure the, this abject desire that makes us bend our knees, lays us on the couch, and makes us remain there? I, I would love anyone. Uh, one of the questions I know uh, we had a couple people mention, there's a continuous reference in this entire section to uh, bend our knees, lays us on the couch, and makes us remain there. I, to me, uh, again, this is Guattari. He's odd odd cat but like the laying on the couch uh, yeah i get that bend our knees i'm i'm confused in general about what he means by that last sentence sounds like catholic confessional almost yeah i thought it was just a reference yeah. to religious that helps thank you it's uh, i don't have the touch points maybe uh that he did that's fair um so again this this section though to go back uh freeing i'm i'd love I'm sure you'd love to give a few moments of chat on this but this is a hundred percent this is Guattari. Uh, I mean, this is like, this isn't even touched by Deleuze. Uh, would you like to take a few moments and, and run through it real quick? But um, if I. Oh, you sure, Roger. To, yeah. Sure. You need to understand how you bend your knees on the couch. You lay on your side and you bend your knees. So it's like a becoming children. You put yourself into the children position. And from there, you know, you open yourself to a broader form of organization, which is, you know, calling the father, calling the mother. Or... Yeah, I'm, see, I'm with Winter Race. I read it as, yeah, I there, think as well. there's, a, there's a point of submission in it. that, And, and I think that that applies no matter which one of us, actually, actually all of our interpretations ultimately come down to that, that there is a level of uh, me as the patient, there is a level of submission to the analysand, uh, that naturally I'm the child in the relationship, I'm the master slave, whatever dialectic you want to use. Um, that there is there is an aspect of that, and he, I mean, Guattari here just shits all over that concept. I mean, it's it's he really, 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 really hates the way analysis is done. Is the short yeah, version. Yeah, I think uh, right, this yeah. also sort of uh, goes back to the um, the first chapter where he talks about how a, a schizo in the in the out in the open taking a walk is better than uh, a neurotic on the couch and so on. Um, but um, one of the points that that it's quite interesting is the, the contractual relationship that um, 
that is brought up here and which the uh, loose also mentions in the preface to uh, transversality and psychoanalysis where he he mentions how um, if like in the past um, we excluded the insane from contractual relations by deeming them incapable of contractual relationships freud's uh, sleight of hand was in bringing in a huge swathe of people uh, quote unquote neurotics uh into the fold of a particular contract in order to um lead them into like this uh to into lead them into like uh this this process of like normalization and so on so i think contract here is used in that double uh sense as well uh how the notion of that was uh expanded and it's sort of like a foucauldian critique uh, i think where you think you are improving upon certain processes of the past you think you're being more humane like how psychoanalysis is like it's about bringing back giving the analysis their humanity and so on but actually what's happening is that it's it's expanding certain kinds of uh, depressive modalities and uh, and so on and yeah and um, yeah so that that that's something that was interesting to me and also this idea of submission um and confession at least in when you're in the confession box you leave and you don't exactly come back every week right like but i think for delus and gatari um uh when they talk about this inexhaustible process of like analysis with no end uh that is kind of like um it becomes a bit like a, a process with uh, the, the the process itself is like the, the the goal in itself rather than anything beyond it uh which is something that gatari would, would wouldn't fit with sit well with him because uh for him the the point of group analysis is that through analysis um through uh through the force of the group's desire and so on there that there is a kind of uh unified interest that should emerge with the group and that that potential is directed outward rather than uh be kept confined to the four walls of a clinic and so on i love that and it's the 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 two parts here where he's describing as someone who's, who's gone through therapy uh and some level of psychoanalysis uh the the two lines uh we are astonished when we hear that a terminated analysis is by that very fact a failure even if this proposition is accompanied by the analyst's little smile which i think is a it's a yeah. nice little picture of Whereas for for gatari one of the the main features or one of the main characteristics you can say of 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 uh, group subjects uh, as opposed to subject groups is that they do have their own dissolution in mind so dissolution is extremely important because you don't want uh, you don't want it to become like a totalizing oppressive force so that is a challenge which he kind of uh, was sort of grappling with as well that how do groups also come to like a natural dissolution how trans transference becomes group transversality Absolutely. And, uh, and so on yeah well and and i think again to uh, to relate this back to the underlying thing that is always difficult to understand is what is the body without organs this has massive impact on that this is the the way that analysis has always been done uh, the moment it can be it's recorded on the surface of the body without organs it becomes the way things are so yes the analysis the analysis and uh, they 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 laugh a little bit about oh can you believe that he still wants to come over it's been years he still wants to have dinner with me and he wants to have this larger relationship and they laugh and they joke about it but it and as glottery is pointing out here actually it's more of a sign of abject dependence even though that's the way very much it's done i know uh, too many people who have a therapist psychoanalyst or psychiatrist that they've been seeing for a decade and they probably will see until the day they die uh 
and that's awful. But it reminds the... me of uh, Annie Hall, if anyone's familiar with that, that Woody Allen. Oh character. yes, <laughs> yes, actually, I mean, Woody Allen of... as a character in all yeah. of his movies, I think applies pretty uh, well. And then Annie Hall is contrasted with Diane Keaton's character, who sits face to face with her analyst, and it's uh, it's like a different dynamic altogether, rather than sitting on the couch and so on. That's fantastic. I'm going to uh, move on to the next chapter. Uh, I'll give it a read. Um, uh, the next, uh, sorry, the next paragraph. You know, for some reason, I'm tired. Um, let us consider a third and final text of Freud's. Analysis, terminable and interminable. We prefer not to follow a recent suggestion that it would be better to translate analysis finite, analysis infinite, since finite infinite is almost mathematics or logic, whereas the problem is particularly practical and concrete. Does this story have an ending? Can an analysis be ended? Can the process of analysis be terminated? Yes or no? Can it be completed, or is it condemned to a constant self-perpetuation? As Freud says, can a currently given conflict be exhausted? Can the one who is sick be forewarned against ulterior conflicts? Can even new conflicts be awakened for a preventative purpose? A great beauty animates this text of Freud's, an undefined something that is hopeless, disenchanted, tired, and at the same time a serenity, a certitude in the finished work. It is Freud's testament. He is going to die, and he knows it. He knows something is wrong in psychoanalysis. The cure tends to be more and more interminable. He knows that soon he will no longer be there to see how things are going. So he takes stock of the obstacles to treatment. With the serenity of the person who senses what a treasure his work is, but senses to the poisons that have already filtered in. Everything would be fine if the economic problem of desire were merely quantitative. It would be a matter of reinforcing the ego against drives, the celebrated strong, mature ego, the contract, the pact between the analyst and the ego that is normal in spite of everything, except that there are qualitative factors in the desiring economy that indeed present an obstacle to treatment, and Freud reproaches himself for not having taken them sufficiently into account. Um, as a just a quick bit of background, the text they're talking about here is... The title should fairly give it away, uh, talking about what it takes to terminate and end analysis and how analysis sort of has a forever quality to it, uh, that it, it will continue and that there is a hopelessness in it. And I did not give it a long read. I gave it a very short read last night. But this is a very, very good way of looking at it, that uh, Freud is very much writing from a position of uh, these there is almost a never-ending thing. I am personally never not going to be able to be there, but work can continue without me. Um, what I would like to add is a kind of polarizing view that Freud gives uh, in the span of 25 years. So in the, the essay he, he wrote in 1914, which is titled Remembering, Repeating, and Working Through, and I'll quote from it um, right this second. So he says, I've often been asked to advise upon cases in which the doctor complained that he had pointed out his resistance to the patient and that nevertheless no change had set in. Indeed, the resistance had become all the stronger and the whole situation was more obscure, obscure than ever. The treatment seemed to make no headway. This gloomy foreboding always proved mistaken. The treatment was, as a rule, progressing most satisf satisfactorily. The analyst had merely forgotten that giving the resistance a name could not result in its, in its immediate cessation. One must allow the patient time to become more conversant with, the, with this resistance with which he, he has now become acquainted. 
to work through it, to overcome it by continuing in a defiance of it, the analytic work according to the fundamental world of analysis. And this fundamental world of analysis, we see a kind of shift in the span of 25 years from this, uh, you know, uh, let it go attitude, just let it pass through. He has to work through it once that he has remembered it, right? To, you know, maybe there is no cure. Maybe we cannot, uh, as they say, maybe Freud has really recognized that this uh, letting go of stuff or letting things uh, play out in in the sessions as they should, right? Maybe uh, Freud realized that this is not the case 25 years later. Yes, actually. I really like that. But uh, Craig's having a conversation in chat with Parkbench. I would love to... Uh, could, do either of you have mics? Because I'd love, Craig, if you could just take two seconds to elucidate what you're talking about there. Uh, because the concept of uh, Guattari uh, and the points he's making elsewhere, I'll just read your comment. One of the points Guattari, Guattari makes elsewhere is the very real and palpable dimension of the revolutionary mode. The need for the group is just charged upon completion of the revolution, a change which demands an effective shift and an institutional one. The real is important to disclosing the necessity and necessary termination of a revolution in order to not become a subject group. Uh, uh, subjugated group. Okay, there we go. That makes more sense because we're talking about uh, as people move from subject group to subjugated group and the castration that takes place there, uh, every revolution that happens, the rotation happens and the switching of the position happens. Is that fair, Craig? Uh, the, that's what we're talking about? Sorry, I, I couldn't unmute. <laughs> no, no. Okay, um, so uh, one more time with the question, Brooks, I'm sorry. Well, I just, uh, the, the concept of uh, how the subject and the subjugated uh, come into each other uh, yeah. through the course of revolution. Revolution happens, the subjugated group is able to move into a different place, but uh, at the same time, they become subject group, the subjugated does in a revolution. But if they aren't careful, ultimately they become once again castrated and subject and part of that subjugated group again. Oh, yeah. And I think the biggest example that for them is, um, I guess you would say, it's not even worth mentioning in 1968 or 1970 or 1972, whenever this is uh, published, but uh, Stalinism. So looking at the Russian Revolution and, and the various machinations that it had undergone, and effectively, um, the ways that Stalinism ended up mirroring monarchy in some way and sort of reinstalling the old order just a new garb. So yeah, um, so the dynamic uh, is that any subject or yeah, any subject group can become a subjugated group. I think one of the more interesting points is how quickly they can shift and how at any time, even like within a week, you could go back and forth. Even a group like this could have um, subjugated group tendencies and subject group tendencies in, in the midst of a conversation. I mean, granted, it might be trivial to point out those movements. I, I think what we want to look at is overall, like uh, when we look at, for example, the uh, the enactment of revolution uh, in a socio-historical context and how is it that, for example, we can even come to think of the possibility of the proletariat owning the means of production. Uh, the shift from a subjugated group to the subject group involves 
the implementation of new slogans, the implementation of new languages, different kinds of voices speaking, sometimes different dialects speaking. Think about the ways in which um, large state configurations subsume um, smaller groups. And they, they, subsume they effectively, they effectively re-territorialize uh, absolutely. all sorts of things. But at some point uh, through those actions, they absolutely, if they are not careful, uh, the and it's even the section we're in are talking about the qualitative factors behind the damage to the ego and why people can't fall fall issue to these. And I think that the next few uh, paragraphs really get into it. But ultimately, that re-territorialization becomes de-territorialization when the subject group becomes subjugated yet again. Uh, and basically, the subject group lives in a place of eternal fear and worry of becoming the subjugated. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I was going to ask, uh, do you think it's fair to say that, like, um, the body without organs and the socius are kind of the way that they're trying to get us to think about this phenomenon in general beyond all these particular cases of how the subjugated once again becomes a subject? I, I would say absolutely. Um, if we look at their conceptualizations uh, as being uh, sharing components of one another, I mean, there's a way in which the the notion of a body without organs is functioning in this notion of subject group and subjugated group absolutely and this idea was developed more independently by Gattari than than was Deleuze and you can see how they are kind of being interleaved with one another here in the text well and so um i think it's worth us getting through the next few uh, paragraphs here because we're, at this point we're not talking about uh, the qualitative factors and the desiring economy that present obstacles to treatment, uh, obstacles to growth, obstacles to revolution, whatever uh, phrasing you may want. Um, the, would anyone like to read and begin reading the next one? Except Andrew. Anyone but Andrew. We've had Andrew and I have read quite a bit. Uh, Jack, would you like to take one? I can read if Jack does. Oh, please go for it. Okay. The first of these factors is the, quote, rock of castration, the rock with two non-symmetrical faces, which creates in us an uncurable alveolus, and against which the analyst stumbles. The second is a qualitative aptitude for conflict, which means that the quantity of libido does not branch into two variable forces corresponding to heterosexuality and homosexuality, but creates in most people irreducible oppositions between the two forces. Finally, the third factor of such economic importance that it outweighs the dynamic and topical considerations concerns a type of resistance that is non-localizable. It would seem that certain subjects have such a viscous libido, or on the contrary, such a liquid one, that nothing succeeds in, quote, taking hold. It would be a mistake to see in this a remark... It would be a mistake to see in this remark of Freud's nothing more than an observation of detail, a mere anecdote. In fact, it concerns what is most essential in the phenomenon of desire, the qualitative flows of the libido. So, so basically what, the, what the, they're saying here is that Freud is pointing to this problem of flow in his article. And you know they're you, they're offering that as evidence that what their 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 approach with respect to desiring machines that cut up the flow is there latent in what Freud is saying.
So what is the rock with two non-symmetrical faces? I'm totally lost there. Well, the uh, so they, they frequently mark point out that Oedipus is not symmetrical, and I think they're talking about gender, where castration affects men and women differently, right? Because for men, you're afraid of losing your penis, and for women, they have the penis envy. So it's not, it's not symmetrical, but it's the same phenomenon that constructs sexuality in both genders. Um, it's something along the lines of um, what Parkbench asked today, and they quoted page 60 when they called the phallus, when those in Gattari, I mean, called the phallus Iliac with two non-superimposable signs. So, so this is, uh, I think, the same. Maybe it's referring to the phallus, or maybe um, some other reductionist transcendent, the transcendent, transcendental signifier. But if, um, yeah. I think I another comments. another way that 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 line there is important is the way that. That asymmetry ramifies the psychoanalytic relationship between analyst and analysand. And so when they go into talking about the gap, um, it, it imposes the, the problem that's created by psychoanalysis, then gets actually, it actually falls back upon the, the analyst, him or herself, because what they have done is they have either created or subscribed to this method to which there is no terminable cure. And they understand, like, like Freud did, there's no way out of this without collapsing the entire structure of this thing. And mm, so right. one of the things that keeps the dynamic going is this gap. And so here again, we have the creation of lack within this microcosm of the psychoanalytic tableau. And then from there, what happens? Um, you have the bourgeois contractualism, the bourgeois legalism running that whole circuit. You have the money, the introduction of a third party who's, who's never there to represent themselves, and so on. Right, and this is uh, similar to what we've seen maybe in the, the first part of this section or the, the first section of this chapter when they speak of how Freud actually saw all these post-vocal you know, formations which are forming and which are there in the unconscious and which can be found in psychoanalysis, but actually, in a way, and this is what they're getting at when they talk about the flows, right, and that, yeah, it looks fine. When they talk about flows and when they, and when they say that this remark by Freud is not a kind of, you know, accidental remark, is what they mean, and I, what, what I think they mean, actually, is, is that Freud, um, you know, as we said earlier, earlier imposes this uh, Oedipus and all of these polar vocal formations and actually makes them uh, go away. Yeah, and it sounds to me like what they're doing here is drawing out this, like, Marxian reading of psychoanalysis, where, like, how the bourgeoisie depends on the proletariat, the uh, analysand really depends on the analysis also. That, that's right, Doug. Yeah, so basically the relationship between the psychoanalyst and the analysand is one of complete codependence. Uh, one, one way that I think this is important is, and, and one of the ways that Deleuze and Gattari are thinking, is how these little microcosms or these little tableaus, the family, for example, um, uh, the, the psychoanalytic space, are actually not microcosms at all. Uh, in the sense that they're somehow removed from the social field, 
but they're fully embedded, fully interpenetrated nodes, places where the uh, the values of the bourgeois, um, their contractarianism, their legalism, uh, the pitched power relations, the hierarchy, all gets reinscribed and reinstituted. Right, because this is why they're talking about how the social, um, uh, whatever they said about the social, I forgot the second word, being the determined case of the uh, individual um, desire, I think. Right. And uh, could you say more about the that there, the individual desire? The determined I mean, we have case? This, I like how you use that, but I'm yeah, not sure. So, I mean, know. if you want to imagine like, well, the real individual, right, for them is like the mental patient and... Uh, they kind of have this almost absolute freedom in the way that they like don't really connect to um, the same social reality as everybody else. Yeah. And then, but within that, that social, uh, the social desire is kind of the constraining of all these partial individual uh, desires into these institutions. And uh, so I think like the, the social is kind of like that limit of that where everything is fully constrained and determined up to rolling the dice. The problem that they're taking on here, you're hitting on it exactly, mirrors Marx's struggle to make an account of individuality against Stirner. I mean, Marx, in his his uh, construal of the individual versus the collective, um, you know, had to come to terms with this very common bourgeois notion of individuality. And that's at work here. And to be honest, like not that I have a full-fledged criticism of Deleuze and Gattari here, one of the things that they're working to overcome, which I'm not completely sure they do, is overcoming the, the notion of the individual. I mean, we do have a fully rendered theory of partial objects, uh, collective agents of enunciation, but um, I think there's an admission pretty early on that this notion of individuality, uh, meaning individual bodies, uh, is required for the inscription process. And I mean, I know there's something that I'm missing right now. There's there's an immediate retort to this, which I just don't have in my back pocket right now. But um, I, I think you're right, at, at the very least. I, I, so just real quick, I would, as a just a quick retort, to me, it's when we start talking about the singularity and the multitudes, uh, multiplicity, that is essentially their direct retort to the concept of individuality that is the bourgeois notion. The bourgeois notion that Marx always struggled with is uh, that people make their own decisions, they go about their time, that one person's labor is one person's labor, and people make their choices. And they're saying, look, you can have almost, you can have both, that it's a bit of a, a dialectic when you say things like uh, a person goes about their lives, they make all their decisions, they take on this, but at the same time, their singularity, their their all the things that make them up are ultimately 900 different parts of these larger group fantasies. Yeah. And one can both be singularity and multiplicity at once. That's, That's right. Uh, it's very much their, their core concept there. So when we're talking about uh, here, when we're talking about an analyst and an analysand, and we have a one-to-one -one relationship, they're basically, sh again, shitting all over this idea when we talk about, hey, the, this isn't how this works. You can't just have one-to-one -one because all of your bullshit is coming in and all of their bullshit is coming in, and there are all of these desiring machines and other things that you're not taking in. Just dropping in really quick. Uh, we had a big error with our recording system. We dropped a little bit here. We lost about three to four minutes. Just wanted to let you know why you're about to hear something that does not make any sense. And please join us after this break.
I will stitch this together. Craig Bott is just being a bastard. Uh, Andre Green recently took up the question again by making up a list of three types of sessions, the first two of which uh, comprise counterindications, the third alone constituting the ideal session in analysis. According to type one, viscosity, resistance of a hysterical form, the session is dominated by a heavy, weighty, boggy climate. The silences are leaden. The discourse is dominated by the events of the day. It's uniform. It is a descriptive narration where no reference to the past is disclosable. It unfolds along a continuous thread, unable to allow itself any break. Dreams are narrated. The enigma of dream is taken up in the secondary elaboration that makes dreams as narration and as event take precedence over dream as a working over of thoughts, a sticky transference. According to type two, liquidity, resistance of an obsessional form, here the session is dominated by an extreme mobility of representations of all sorts. The language is unfettered, unfettered, rapid, almost torrential. Everything enters here. The patient could just as easily say the opposite of everything he is uttering without changing anything fundamental to the analytic situation. All of this is without consequence, since the analysis slides off the couch like water off a duck's back. The unconscious does not cause anything to stick. There is no anchoring in the transference. Here the transference is volatile. Only the third type remains, whose characteristics define a good analysis. The patient speaks in order to constitute the process of a chain of signifiers. The meaning is not attached to the signified, to which each of the enunciated signifiers refers, but is constituted by process, suture, and concatenation of bound elements. Every interpretation furnished by the patient can offer itself as an already signified awaiting its meaning. For this reason, interpretation is always retrospective as the perceived meaning. So that was what this meant. <clears throat> There's a lot here, I think. And um, one of the main points which can be identified right off the bat is how, as we've uh, testified too many times before, how psychoanalysis is uh, inherently reductive, right? We have three types of uh, analysis here, right? And only only one of the uh, only one of those three three can actually work and uh, maybe uh, terminate the the analysis itself successfully. The other two are just uh, completely inadequate. Um, they don't work as the analyst would um, want it to, right? So. As they say, the it slides off like water off a duck's back. But uh, what's interesting to me is um, that this whole type one analysis is designated by Lacan in uh, in what he calls empty speech, right? Where the analyst comes in and, uh, as they say here, talks about the events of the day. And that as I read this, it's actually they talk about the other. You know, social relations. They talk about uh, certain institutions, as uh, Craig has uh, has said previously in previous discussions. Maybe maybe it's politics, right? They uh, try to talk about something else, which is not uh, directly transference, which is not directly daddy mommy, right? And uh, all of a sudden, the analysis stops working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any comments? I just yeah, you know, I, I, I was just going to say that, uh, and 
basically the the two failures as they point out and it's important as we get into the rest of this uh, section the failures that they're really outlining here are on the one side where uh, very little is ultimately said and what is said is uh, effectively uh, almost uh, a signless uh, it's very very simple very basic uh, things are sort of uh, rote Type two is the opposite. Things are oversaid. Things are said a million different ways. They could say whatever they want to say, and ultimately the analyst, and the analyst is kind of getting whatever they're getting out of it, and it doesn't really matter. Um, right, and maybe this uh, this type two, while you were summarizing it, it sounds a lot like uh, the schizophrenic, right? Which can, in every moment, alternate uh, what he was saying before and then exchange it completely. Uh, say something uh, else, or we just rephrase it in a way that it doesn't sound the same. So yes, maybe uh, basically, basically spending the entire hour of it describing the right, thing, describing the over and over and over and over uh, the uh, liquidity resistance of obsessional form. They're type, here he's ma they're making direct reference to the liquidity of the libido, the energy of life yeah. that he's got uh, is just flying through, it's deeply liquid. Whereas the previous one is viscosity of libido, which is uh, slower, uh, much more, uh, yeah, they would use the term thoughtful perhaps, uh, but not really thoughtful, but more that they spend more time picking and choosing words very particularly. But the third, the right. third type is ultimately a patient that effectively is solving their own problems. Like is how I read that, that the patient effectively is saying everything that they need to say. They, they're doing so to an analyst who just basically is just there uh, to receive these things that are already signified. Uh, I, I would go in and say, yeah, no, I had this crazy dream where uh, I, I had a head made of a chocolate bar and a bird ate it. Now, of course, this relates to the time when I was younger and I had a chocolate bar my mother uh, refused to allow me to have and ultimately took it and I saw my father eating it later. And it gave me this, this problem said, that was what this meant. I'm flying by really, really simply uh, right. that, that it's effectively are. not no one's needed. I don't know how else to put it, but <laughs> like. Maybe um, just now that you mention it, um, the way this, uh, you know, final realization in the type three comes. So that's what it meant. And we've uh, encountered this before, but I haven't, uh, I haven't called upon uh, a psychoanalytic term. And, and this is what uh, Laplanche actually built a career on and what Lacan first saw in Freud and what they, uh, in French, called après coup, and uh, which is in English translated as afterwardsness. So it's a term, and I'm quoting, a term frequently used by Freud in connection with his view of psychical, uh, of, uh, psychical temporality and causality. Experiences, impressions, and memory traces may be revised at a later date to fit in with fresh experiences or with the attainment of a new stage of development. They may, in that event, be endowed not only with a new meaning but also with psychical effectiveness. So, so we here see a kind of uh, retroactive necessitating events, right? Or, or a kind of retroactive connection between, um, between uh, you know, certain, uh, certain uh, apparently unconnected events. Right? Yes. Well, and I think they're, they're um, I, I, I would love someone to read the next uh, section. Uh, can I just say something? Yes, uh, the uh, you know I think we should think about this in terms of just 
everyday speech and uh, and how, you know, in everyday speech, you know, there could be uh, the kind of uh, situation where, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of silences and you just talk about describing the world as it exists in front of you and don't talk about anything significant. But the, on the other hand, there's chatter where you, where people are talking and they're just talking about everything under the sun with no point to it. And this is this is something that uh, actually uh, Heidegger talks about when he, he talks about one of the red A's of Dasein is uh, uh, one of the existentials of Dasein is uh, red A, which is uh, discourse and its opposite is chatter. And then and then and then the, the the third one is where you have significant speech, you know, where where you're talking about things that matter and there's some depth to what's being discussed. And so I don't think this just applies to a uh, psychoanalytic situation, but you could see this as the nihilistic type one and type two are kind of like the nihilistic opposites for speech in general. And uh, and so type three is more significant speech. I think that's a really fair way to look at it. Because it, again, they are absolutely in every way talking about analysis and analysis relationships here because it's quattri. But it's 100% in here because it applies to basically almost every human interaction at the same time. Um, so for yeah. the next section, uh, Frank. Well, oh, oh, yes. I just want to say, uh, I think there's also something here connected to like the uh, process of production of production where every interpretation uh, you know, is supposed to be a meaning, but it's also awaiting its own meaning. So it's reproducing this uh, interpretation process uh, every step of the way. Okay, that's interesting. Ooh. All right. Well, while I process that, Frain, do you want to read off on the next uh, paragraph? And then uh, Carbon, we'll toss you in after that. Okay, sure. Um, what is serious is that Freud never questions the process of the cure. Of course, it is too late for him, but is it too late for those who come after him? He interprets these things as obstacles to the cure and not as shortcomings of the treatment itself or as effects or counter effects of his method. For castration as an analyzable state or non-analyzable, the ultimate rock is the the ultimate rock is the effect of castration as a psychoanalytic act. An Oedipal homosexuality, the qualitative aptitude for conflict, is rather the effect of Oedipalization, which the treatment does not invent but precipitates and accentuates within the artificial conditions of its exercise transference. And inversely, when flows of libido resist therapeutic practice rather than being a resistance of the ego. This is the intense outcry of all desiring production. We already knew that the pervert resisted Oedipalization. Why should he surrender since he has invented for himself other, other territorialities, more artificial still and more lunar than that of Oedipus? We knew the schizo was not Oedipalizable because he is beyond territoriality, because he has, cried his, because he has carried his flows right into the desert. But what remains once we learn that resistances of an hysterical or an obsessional, obsessional form bear witness to the anti-Oedipal quality of the flows of desire on the very terrain of Oedipus? That is precisely what qualitative economy shows. Flows ooze, they traverse the triangle, breaking apart its vertices. The Oedipal ward does not absorb these flows any more than it could seal off a jaw of jam or plug a dike. Against the walls of the triangle, toward the outside, 
flows exert the irresistible pressure of lava or the invincible oozing of water. One of the points there is that what they're saying is there are no good or bad flows. There are just flows. And so this, this desiring machine view uh, doesn't uh, project uh, good and bad on the, uh, on the flows. It just recognizes what's flowing. Right, and this is what uh, we talked about earlier about um, about drives, right, not being in any kind of evolutionary causality, right? They're all actually the same. They flow into one another, right? There isn't a kind of hierarchy which uh, we're organized in. I would love, um, so I, I think we could spend forever going over this. Um, could anyone give a just general top line summary of some of the points in this? Because my brain is not, uh, I didn't know we were going to get this far in the chat, chat and we have 20 minutes to get through what is two more paragraphs. So I want to just a quick uh, summary. And I think we're going to spend uh, this week uh, going through a lot of this uh, with a more fine-tuned comb and some review sessions, because I think it's completely worth it. Um, it's completely worth it. This is such a dense paragraph. Jesus. Hey, I think basically all they're doing here is they're uh, raising the question of whether the cure works or not. And because uh, they're saying basically that Freud talks like the... Uh, like the uh, like the like the whole thing is working and doesn't go into uh, you know only goes into little details about uh, this or that not working in the article. Uh, they they talk about the basically there's a ter territoriality that comes with the analyst and Alessand relationship, and by nature all of these different uh, uh, let's call it therapeutic diagnostic things whether it's per uh, the pervert the uh, schizo, uh, really anyone, they all have their own, ultimately their own terrain or their own relation to it, which precludes their ability to be fixed by it. There's also a very specific ethical note here. Um, it's, I would call it part of Deleuze and Gattari's political program as well. Anywhere where there's a sort of restrictive delineation, take note that there is a quantitative and a qualitative dimension. This is Deleuze uh, basically refurbishing something from Bergson that I don't want to get into, but definitely look at Bergson's view of uh, quantity versus quality here. And what he's saying is that these delineations cannot capture all these lines of flight, uh, which here is symbolized or, you know, metonymized by ooze or viscosity. Um, that is what... I mean, there's a great paper there. Just um, and James Hillman, we talked about in the previous, like what is the the um, the role of viscosity when it, in thought? What is the role of viscosity in res, uh, revolution? Right, right. Um, how can we dissolve these junctures uh, that that impose these delineations uh, upon anything? So, um, I think what we're seeing here too, and and I pointed this out with Kent that there is no good and bad in any moral sense here. Uh, I mean, I can't off the top of my head think of a, re a revolution that remained revolutionary and dissolved itself and was bad and or good per se. I, I mean, I'm just 
not in the mood to think of that example, I guess. But the ethical value, what is deemed ethical here, exceeds the notion of good and bad. The, the ethical question is framed as, how is it that anything that has been delineated and imposed can be exceeded? Well, here's one metaphor, ooze, viscosity. Um, right, and liquidity. And yeah. that's what they're talking about in the previous uh, paragraph as well, where they start talking about uh, the three sort of types of these conversations and the way libidinal energy flows. You've got the viscosity version, which is thick, oily, slow, uh, dominated by heavy conversation. Hyperliquid, which is very fast and moving quickly, but doesn't really uh, settle in any place. And ultimately, uh, the good in Alessand, uh, the patient who's able to speak in a process a chain of signifiers very clearly. But, but I think, um, uh, just real quick, because it is, uh, I do want to get through, we have two more chapters, two more paragraphs. Um, carbon, uh, did uh, you want to jump in here uh, and read through? Yes, there's Carbon. Let's give, give it a read. Are you there, Carbon? Oh, you're super, super quiet. Oh, no. It's kind of far away. There you go. That's better. better. Yeah. All right. How's that, folks? Yeah, I was listening to you on Bluetooth. Okay. Uh, so I'm reading off your casting no here. So give me just one sec. Are, are you on? Are you still casting on the same spot? Oh, okay. Invincible oozing in water. Yes. Uh, what are the most favorable conditions for the cure? What are the most favorable conditions for the cure it is asked a flow that lets itself be plugged by oedipus partial objects that let themselves be subsumed under the category of a complete object even if absent the phallus of castration break flows that let themselves be projected onto a mythical space polyvocal chains that let themselves be by by univocalized linearized suspended from a signifier an unconscious that lets itself be expressed, connective syntheses that let themselves be taken in a global and specific use, disjunctive syntheses that let themselves be taken in an exclusive restricted use, conjunctive syntheses that let themselves be taken in a personal and segregative use. For what is the meaning of so that was what this meant? The crushing of the so onto Oedipus and castration, the sigh of relief, you see, the colonel, the instructor, the teacher, the boss, all of this meant that. Oedipus and castration, all history in a new version. This is uh, yeah, I really like this because it's really a, powerful final sentence. And it offers a kind of a recapitulation of uh, not only what was said in this uh, whole section, but also many of the things which were said before, especially with the break flows and the the partial objects and uh, many other things. And it's the the cure for it is so that is what this meant, and that's so. I I love that line. Right, what is it's the, the what is that so the so precisely the afterwardsness that I was talking about earlier, uh, in the case of Freud. Right? I I love I love this uh, paragraph. Okay, so um, um, maybe so I, finish I, it off. I, uh, go for it. Go ahead and finish off uh, the, the last paragraph, and then we'll have a few final words as we're nearing 2 o'clock. Right. Yeah. So, 
We're not saying that Oedipus and castration do not amount to anything. We are Oedipalized. We are castrated. Psychoanalysis didn't invent these operations, to which it merely lends the new resources and methods of its genius. But is this sufficient to silence the outcry of, desire, of desiring production? We're all schizos. We're all perverts. We're all libidos that are too viscous and too fluid, and not by preference, but wherever we have been carried by the deterritorialized flows. What neurotic, provi provided he is somewhat serious, is not leaning against the rock of schizophrenia, a rock, in this case, mobile, aerolytic, who does not haunt the perverse territorialities beyond the kindergartens of Oedipus, who does not feel in the flows of his desire both the lava and the water, and above all, what brings about our sickness. Schizophrenia itself as a process, or is it brought about by the fran frantic neuroticization which we have been delivered and for which psychoanalysis has invented new means? Oedipus and castration. Is it schizophrenia as a process that makes us sick, or is the self-perpetuation of the process in the void a horrible exasperation? The production of the schizophrenic as entity, or is it the confusion of the process with a goal, the production of the pervert artifice, or the premature interruption of the process, the production of the neurotic analysis? We are forcibly confronted with Oedipus and castration. We are reduced to them, either so as to to measure us against the cross, or to establish that we cannot measure up to it. But in any case, the harm has been done. The treatment has chosen the path of medicalization, all cluttered with refuse. Instead of the schizophrenization that must cure us of the cure. And this is, please, please. I'm just gonna say something real quick. These these last three paragraphs from flow through now, I'm just going to admit that I'm literally living that. So as far as the weekly discussion or extrapolation from it, by all means, come to me and I'll tell you whatever I can tell you about them. I I'm, I may have to ask you to expand on that at some point. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's uh, it, the the last three paragraphs for this section are. I mean, they, they lead obviously next into the next section, but they're ultimately coming down to the same thing that we saw earlier with Oedipus, and they're talking about it here again, and they're talking about it in terms of the analyst and Alessand uh, conversation, that these things do exist, these things do matter, but the process, the 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 hierarchies that we have put ourselves in actually are damaging. They are not the cure. They are the cure that we need now to be cured of. and. Uh, their, I mean, their proposal ultimately is going to be schizoanalysis, um, which is, I think, uh, we're starting to see the beginning of the conception of that here. Uh, yeah, it's, just, I think it's this, so much. It is so this, fucking much. This echoes kind of like uh, psychotherapy's uh, critique of psychoanalysis, that it doesn't work. And so, uh, but the response to that was also nihilistic in the sense that they, um, in psychotherapy, they tried everything under the sun and not much of that worked either. So, um, so it, you know, it kind of brings back to the, as to the problem that these uh, uh, illnesses that we have that are mental type illnesses are a very difficult problem. And, you know, we try to sweep it up under the, under the carpet by giving people lots of pills 
but that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Um, I want to say that I really like the ending here. I think they're bringing back in from like the uh, first section in chapter one, this third aspect of uh, process, how it's not supposed to be um, an end unto itself. Uh, but that is, I think, how they are comparing, um, you know, making a productive parallel between capitalism, Marx and Freud here, where, uh, yeah, psychoanalysis is becoming this interminable process, uh, which is an end unto itself in this codependent manner. And this is also like how um, under capitalism, work has become an end unto itself, rather than working to achieve something, uh, you know, at least our collective work. I think that's actually a great note to end this on. Uh, there's a, as we as we finish off the chapter the section, is there any other final thoughts? Because I think uh, what I'm going to push for, and I think we'll talk to the admins. This uh, section we're going to push for a lot more of the follow up and reviews. We've had some really good luck with those in the past, and I think this one is worth us spending a little bit of extra time on. So. Um, We'll definitely be doing one of those tomorrow at noon with a few few of us uh, joining to sort of guide through further questions and not do necessarily as close a direct reading, but much more of a review synopsis and uh, sort of uh, analysis uh, period, which I think will be uh, great for me. I'll be joining because I have a lot of questions on those last uh, few paragraphs. Uh, but right, and as I always say, uh, right before the end, um, for the recap, any questions which were uh, which arose in reading this whole section are welcome. You can add them in follow-up questions. You can uh, send them to any of the admins directly. Uh, if you don't feel like posting publicly, uh, everything will uh, probably be answered. And uh, yeah, we welcome you all to come and uh, uh, participate in the discussion and type comments, uh, type questions in the chat while we're discussing. Yeah. Thank you. And and I just like to uh, mention that you know they're talking about a specific article of Freud here uh, about terminable and interminable uh, analysis. And um, I re I read that yesterday, and and that it's very interesting. You know, so you know I, re I recommend that uh, people read that because it's it's very interesting to compare uh, what they're saying directly to what Freud said in that in that article. Thank you guys very much for joining us on this lovely Monday. Uh, please join us in the chats, ask any questions you have in the follow-up questions of the collective discussion section. Uh, and if you're up for helping more, like for example, you Carvin, uh, jump into the volunteer chat. I'll probably drop you a message at some point. We're slowly growing out and trying to figure things out as we uh, expand and grow. So uh, thank you guys very much. And I look forward to seeing where this goes.
Thank you.